Well, as Paul draws to a close of this little section of his letter, and uh, from verse 12, uh, the tone of the letter changes considerably when we get there, God willing, in two weeks' time. Um, Paul wants to conclude by assuring us that all of God's Israel shall be saved. All of God's Israel. But of course, that's all of God's Israel, as Paul has gone to great pains to explain what that means and who God's Israel are. And Paul's provided us with a really helpful illustration as he comes toward the end of this section of his letter. He's been explaining that only God's elect, whether Jew or Gentile, only his elect will, by grace, through faith, be saved as they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives us this very simple but such a helpful illustration. There's a wild olive tree, the Gentiles, and God's olive tree. And God's olive tree naturally grows branches of Jewish origin, but not all of natural Israel, not all of national Israel, are God's true spiritual Israel. Many Israelites never come to saving faith in Christ. They are unbelieving branches on this tree. So God cuts them off. We saw this last week leaving only the true believers in Israel. Only those branches which are that remnant, only they remain attached to God's olive tree. All the others are cut off. But such is the wideness of God's grace and mercy that many of these Gentiles over here, they are saved. They believe on Christ, so what does God do for them? Well, he removes them from the wild olive tree and he grafts them into his olive tree. We are taken out of the world and we're joined to Christ and we become part of his people. God has only one tree. God has only one people. God has only one Israel. God has only one church, his elect, believing branches. Are you a believing branch? If you are, you're in. He's done this work. And this conclusion is undeniable as you read chapters 9 and 10 and 11 of this letter. And as the apostle writes predominantly to a, a, a Gentile church in Rome, he wants them to understand that the gospel has moved so powerfully amongst them in part because of Israel's rejection of Christ and because of their disobedience. But also to understand that their faith is playing a part amongst the Jews, amongst Jewish men and women. They are converted as they see in part the power and the grace of God in Christ at work amongst the Gentiles. 
And God, thus, is building his church. And as we draw to the close now of chapter 11, I want us to see these three further lessons this evening that we can pull from the, these verses. Uh, and the first is this. As we, as we get to understand what it is that Paul is teaching here, um, there's a sign that goes up in the heart of every Christian. There's a sign that goes up in every church. No boasting allowed. Because this is all, all God's doing. It's all been his plan. It's all been his purpose. It's all his doing. It's all his power in building his church. This is how God is building his church. You need to understand this for several reasons, says Paul at verse 25. I desire, brethren, that you shouldn't be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own opinion. Now, the word mystery, of course, does not mean that Paul's been, some, been talking about something which is somehow strange and mysterious. The word mystery is used to speak of a truth which could not be known unless God had revealed it, which God has now revealed. That's what Paul means whenever he uses the word mystery. It's a truth which God has made known, which we can only make known because God has made it known. And that's what he means by the word mystery. And it's been revealed to stop you from coming up with your own fanciful theories, for one thing. All of the greatest dangers which the church faces come from within the church, not from outside it. That's one reason why it's always so important not to get too caught up in what's going on in the world. Because whilst you're distracted by that, you actually take your eye off all the dangers that are lurking right in front of your own nose within the church. When churches are assailed by the world, what we see in the Bible, what we see in church history, is that when the church comes under attack openly by the world, generally churches grow stronger. Generally, churches become more united. It's problems on the inside which cause strife and division. And there are few things more divisive than when members of churches, and I include even elders in that, this is not an us and them thing I'm talking about here, all members, any members, there are few things, more devices, where members of churches start coming up with their own fanciful theories and opinions. Well, what I think is, surely a good idea would be to... If ever we start talking like that in elders' meetings, amen, we're in trouble... God has revealed his truth so that we don't need to go down that path. Paul knows that unless he spells it out plainly on this issue, 
the believers in Rome could become overrun with their own speculative ideas and thoughts and opinions. And he wants to make it clear, no, this is all God's doing. This is how God is building his church. And you see there that Paul talks about blindness in part that has happened to Israel towards the end of verse 25. Now, when Paul says blindness in part, he means not all in Israel are blind. Now, you could read it that Paul is saying that all of Israel are only partially blind, but that's not what he's saying. There are some in Israel who are totally blind. There are some in Israel who are totally hard to the gospel, but there are others who are not. And that is his, his meaning of the word partial. Many in Israel have been completely cut off the olive tree because they are completely blinded and hardened in their unbelief. He's already taught us that. Uh, In its context, this is only what Paul can mean. Paul's sorrow and grief with which he begins chapter 9 is not because all of Israel are partially blind. It's because so many in Israel are totally blind. Dr. William Hendrickson, in his commentary on this letter, offers this as a more accurate and I think probably a slightly more helpful translation of the text. A hardening has come upon part of Israel and will last until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So there are many in Israel who are blinded and hard to the gospel of Christ. But do remember, you Gentiles, Paul says, they're not all completely lost. This letter is coming to you from a converted Jew after all. So humble yourselves before God, that he should have shown you such mercy when so many in Israel are lost. Now think about that. That this nation that God chose for himself, so many of them, have remained hardened to the gospel. And yet we who were outside of that have nevertheless been saved. What a privilege that is. What grace and mercy God has shown you and I that the gospel should come to us and that he would do a work of saving grace in us. And and that's, that's the kind of heart that Paul is wanting to encourage in the church in Rome. You have no room for boasting. You have no place to be becoming proud or wise in your own opinions. So then, Paul is teaching us what we have is many in Israel blinded and hardened to the gospel, but there is this elect remnant who will be saved. Paul is one of them. And the other apostles, the apostles of Christ, all those who we read of, in the New Testament, who came to saving faith in Christ, who were Jews by birth, all of them part of that remnant. And Paul teaches that that will continue alongside many Gentiles coming to faith until all of the elect are gathered in. 
the end of verse 25 there, do you see it? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, some read into that word until that once all the Gentiles are converted, God is then going to start something else, something extra with Israel. Because in verse 26, Paul goes on to say, then all Israel will be saved. Or does he? Now, read the text more carefully. Paul does not say, then all Israel will be saved, as if he's pointing to something in the future. He's not saying, this has happened until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, then all Israel will be saved, then something just concerning Israel alone is going to take place. No, Paul says, so all Israel will be saved. In other words, everything that I've been saying, this is, this is how all of God's Israel will be saved. Everything that Paul has described in, this, in these three chapters, this is how it was in his day. This is how it is in our day. This is, will how, it will this is how it will continue until Christ has gathered in all of God's elect. So, all Israel will be saved. And he immediately brings another quotation from the Old Testament, and this time it's from Isaiah chapter 59. And there it is in verse 26. Now, in Isaiah chapter 59, Isaiah goes to great lengths to mourn the many sins of Israel. They have abandoned God completely, and they are only in darkness. God's face is hidden from them because of their sins in chapter 59 of Isaiah. And God looks upon the state of Israel and promises to raise up his own saviour and redeemer for Israel, one who will intercede for them, but who will also bring judgment against ungodly Israel. And this saviour will not only work amongst Israel, but the whole world. They'll fear the name of the Lord from the west, says Isaiah, and from the rising of the sun. That's the east. So from east to west, in other words, across the whole world, salvation will come. This is the covenant that God has given. This is the covenant that's been fulfilled in Christ. Christ who turned away our sins and our guilt at the cross. The Redeemer will come from Zion, from Israel, to Zion, for Zion, to turn them away from their transgression. And Paul quotes this verse saying, this is what's happening right now. This isn't something way off in the future that, yet, that is yet to be. This is happening now. Those of Israel who will repent who turn from their transgression, even sinners like me, even the chief of sinners like me, says Paul, 
though only a, ram a remnant in terms of the nation of Israel, they are being saved. And in terms of the Gentiles from east to west, they're being saved and they're all being grafted in as branches in this olive tree as well. So all Israel will be saved. Paul has no, no hesitation in, in quoting from Isaiah to say, look, just as the prophet said it would be, this is how God is building his church. He's doing it now. He'll do it still. And this is the method that God will continue to use throughout the entire gospel age to call in his elect ones. And if you have a look at verses 28 to 32, Paul here really, he's just repeating and summarising what he's already said in the chapter. Earthly Israel is an enemy to the gospel in its unbelief. Paul suffered terribly at the hands of fellow Jews who were hardened against the gospel and blinded to the truth of Christ. Most of Paul's suffering came not from the Romans, but from fellow Jews. Yet from amongst them there are those who are the elect remnant, and they are beloved as their fathers were, and for the same reason. For these elect ones, this is exactly how, this is exactly how God has promised it would be. And his promises and his call to salvation cannot be revoked. They cannot be withdrawn. They cannot be overturned. God is going to do this. This is how God is working. When we get to verses 30 and 31, Paul actually is simply repeating what he said back in verses 11 and 12. He's not really introducing anything new here. He's just underlining it. He's just putting the yellow highlighter pen through it once more for us. Both Jews and Gentiles are lost. Unbelieving, disobedient sinners in need of saving grace and mercy. And through the disobedience of the Jews, salvations come to elect Gentiles. And through the mercy shown to elect Gentiles, salvation comes to the Jews. In a way that only God would think of, both Jew and Gentile have an unexpected interrelationship when it comes to their being saved. That's what Paul's teaching us here. And this is how God is choosing to work. No wonder when we get to the doxology later, he's saying, who's known the mind of the Lord? Who will become his counsellor? How unsearchable his judgments. His ways are past finding out. These are remarkable things that, that God has revealed to us and the, the way he's chosen to work in the world. The way he chooses to bring us to saving faith in Christ. Both saved Jew and saved Gentile have come from the same position of disobedience. And they've entered into the same grace and mercy of God. And they've all been grafted into the same tree. And what of the all of verse 32? God has committed them all to disobedience. 
that he might have mercy on all. Well, as with so many of these verses, if you isolate that one verse on its own, if you take it out of the context of chapters 9, 10, and 11, well, you can almost make that verse say whatever you want it to say. But as the conclusion to all that's gone before, well, it's not the whole world that Paul is talking about. It's not the entire nation of Israel that's Paul, that Paul is talking about. He's talking about the number of God's elect. God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. On all his chosen ones, on all his elect ones, on all those who are going to come to, to saving faith in Christ. It's all of those believing by faith branches on the olive tree who are the all on whom God is having mercy. All debtors to mercy alone and of covenant mercy they sing. And what these verses show us is that every Christian needs to be continually humbled before the grace and truth and mercy of God. Indeed, in many ways, it puts a big question mark against your profession of faith if you're not someone who's continually humbled when confronted with these truths. There really are none who are righteous. There are none who deserve any favour from God at all. All of us were lost in sinful disobedience. The only claim that any of us can make, whether Jew or Gentile, is that God has shown us remarkable grace and mercy in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that really is much of the lesson that Paul is wanting to drive home here. And you may not fully understand how it is that God is working these things through. You may not fully understand why it is that God would choose to work in this way. But it's all of him and it's all of grace and it's all of mercy. And none of us deserve any of it. As he gathers in his elect ones. And all Israel will be saved. God's olive tree with all the branches finally grafted in, then Christ will return. But there is a conflicting view to these things, and it's, in, it's important to acknowledge this, and it's important to spend a few minutes just addressing the fact that, as I mentioned last week, there are many within the broader Christian church, even amongst Reformed Christians, who would vehemently disagree with this interpretation, uh, particularly these latter verses from verse 25. They would hold that despite everything that Paul has taught in these chapters, and he's taught it so clearly, he's taught it repeatedly, about only a remnant from the nation of Israel being saved, that suddenly and without explanation, Paul has started to look into the future at a time when there will be a vast and almost complete turning to Christ by the nation of Israel. 
when it will seem like all the nation of Israel is being saved. All the Gentiles that are ever going to be saved will be saved. And after that, there will be this mass evangelization of the nation of Israel. Now, this belief often also goes hand in hand with a particular interpretation of the book of Revelation, which claims that the millennium, the thousand years of Revelation chapter 20, that will be a time, although there are some variations in those who believe this, uh, this is quite a broad brush I'm painting the picture with. During this millennium of Revelation chapter 20, there will be a period of a thousand years when Christ physically returns to Jerusalem and reinstates and reinvigorates national Israel. He'll do it physically, he'll do it politically, he'll do it spiritually. And for a period of a thousand years, Christ will reign over them from Jerusalem. Now, there are variations on that, but that's the main belief. It's a position that's held particularly strongly in the United States, but by no means exclusively there. Well, as we've made our way through, I simply don't see how they can make this sudden jump to that position from all that Paul has taught us here. And that interpretation of Revelation uh, is one which, for me, simply does not tally with a proper understanding of the apocalyptic language which is employed in the book of Revelation. And nor does it tally with other scriptures teaching about the return of Christ. We're taught in the Bible that Christ will return once, at a time unknown, and at his return there will be a great resurrection of the dead. For unbelievers, it will be followed by judgment, leading to wrath and condemnation. It is appointed for man once to die, and after that, the judgment. For Christians, well, the return of Christ will, will bring about a great gathering together of all believers. Christ will bring with him, we're told, all those believers who've gone before us into glory. And we will be taken into our eternal glory with Christ, by Christ, in resurrected bodies, where we will be judged also, but not under condemnation, nor to be condemned, but for our eternal reward as those who are justified in Christ Jesus. The book of Revelation is a book of vivid pictures, imagery, and numbers. But hardly any of those things are to be taken as literal. They're figurative. They're symbolic. They're illustrative of spiritual truths and realities. And our understanding of the, the millennial 1,000 years is that this is actually speaking of the entire gospel age until Christ returns. Now, time this evening doesn't permit to expand much further on those things. Uh, but I find myself curiously at odds with men who I hold in very high esteem in Christ. Men from whom, in so many other areas of Christian doctrine, I have benefited much. 
there are also a considerable number who will be in almost complete agreement with this interpretation that I've brought to you this evening. Apart from some divergence regarding verse 26. Those who reject that verse 26 is talking about a mass conversion of Israel at some end period. Those who reject that actually fall into two groups in terms of what they actually think all Israel means in verse 26. Broadly speaking, two groups. Some believe that Paul is referring to all elect Jews. So all elect Jews will be saved. So in other words, so the entire elect remnant that Paul's been talking about, that they will be saved. That view, if you know these kinds of names, is very strongly held amongst our Dutch Reformed brothers. Uh, if you're familiar with names like Bavink and Burkhoff and Ridderboss and William Hendrickson, um, another esteemed brother, O. Palmer Robertson, I believe that's his, his belief also. Others, however, don't believe that Paul is restricting the phrase all Israel to converted Jews only but to all Christian converts, Jew and Gentile, God's olive tree, the natural branches plus the grafted in ones, all of the elect, not just the Jewish branches, but the Gentile branches that have been grafted in also. Uh, we're in good company of someone like John Calvin on that point. All Israel is God's one, true, spiritual Israel, the Church of Christ. Well, that will be my view. Now, clearly, that distinction that I've just mentioned on those two views, those who say, no, all Israel is not just talking about, about all of the nation of Israel at some end time. But those who say it's elect Jews, those who say it's all of the elect, well, obviously that distinction, that difference is not quite so great as separating themselves from saying that God is going to do something wonderful with national Israel at some time in the future. I believe that once you've spent time picking your way through with great care the arguments that Paul brings us in these three chapters, you actually discover that what is laid before you here is actually quite a simple set of truths which are revealed here, a God of unbelievable grace, kindness, wisdom, who will not let us have any share with him of his glory, in this salvation which he has planned out for his world and which he continues to work out in the world, gathering in all of his chosen ones, Jew and Gentile. And what he was doing in Paul's day, he's continued to do since Paul's day, he's doing it today in our day, and he'll continue to do it until all of God's elect are gathered in. And then Christ will return. 
and this gospel age of grace will be brought to a close. And all of us need to make sure that we're ready for that day. Is it any wonder that Paul, at this point, finds himself just overwhelmed by the sheer greatness and goodness and wisdom of God and bursts into praise and adoration from verse 33. These things are so, so high, so wonderful, so holy, so divine as God explains how he brings about the salvation of his children. And so Paul concludes, as we will do now, with a worthy doxology of praise of the wonders and the majesty of God. And as William Hendrickson points out, this doxology at the close of verse 11 is all the more striking given Paul's starting point of grief and sorrow in chapter 9. He begins chapter 9 totally devastated, but he ends chapter 11 rejoicing and praising the Lord nonetheless. Even Paul, I think, surely finds himself struggling to fully comprehend the ways and the mind and the works of God yet totally convinced that this is so and can only simply praise the Lord and worship him. And actually what we see in Paul here, as he begins in such heartbroken grief, but yet is still able to conclude in worship and praise, isn't that such an important lesson? Isn't that a lesson which we often find in the Psalms, for example? There's a sense in which chapter 9 begins with Paul lamenting over what God has not done. He has not saved the majority of his fellow Jews. But three chapters later, having examined all it is that God has purposed and performed, you're reminded of the sheer wonder that any of us are saved at all. We're reminded of the incredible wisdom and loving kindness God employs in order to encompass to accomplish it. And this is such a helpful, such a needy lesson for us to learn from the Apostle here. How easily, how often you can find yourself overwhelmed and all-consumed by what you think it is God should have done, but he hasn't. Anyone ever, anyone never been there? You think God should have done this? Or work like that, but he hasn't. And Paul shows us we need to take a little bit of time. Just, just go back to basics. Just go back to basics. What, what does Paul do in this letter? He takes us back to the basics of you yourself in your sinful rebellion. And me and mine. He takes you back to the basics of God in his infinite wisdom and his incomparable electing grace and mercy. That he would choose any Jew. That he would choose any Gentile. 
the basics of the gospel and of redeeming love and what God has done for you, a guilty sinner. The basics of the abundant and completely undeserved blessings which now are yours in Christ. And when you do that, you will find that as Paul discovered, right thinking returns. Thankfulness returns. Worship and praise return. Because you remember that it is all of God. It is marvellous in our eyes. It doesn't worry me or trouble me that I can't fully understand God. Who do I think I am that I could fully understand God and his ways? And so he thinks upon the wisdom and the knowledge of God in our salvation in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his ways past finding out. How profound God is. How very far beyond our own wisdom is the wisdom of God. There are depths here. You can never hope to see or reach the bottom of them. They're far too deep for you. It's almost like the, a diver in a wetsuit trying to get to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. You'd be crushed to death less than halfway down. There are such riches here that can never be exhausted. It's been said that God's wisdom is his ability to select the best means, even if to us they seem the most unlikely, even if to us at times they seem unreasonable. But he will select the best means for him to work, to bring about those things that he's purposed to do. And in God's, in God's knowledge, we see he understands us through and through. He knows exactly what our needs are. He knows what we need in our sin. He knows precisely what he must do to alleviate us of the captivity that we're held in. His judgments, his wisdom and knowledge combining to produce all of the choices and decisions that God has made. Would you question the choices and decisions that God has made? They are totally perfect, totally righteous, totally good, and especially in his work of salvation. Paul speaks of God's ways, the methods and the means he's able to employ, even turning the hearts of kings and unbelievers, using the decisions of the wicked in order to fulfill his purposes. Who can even begin to fathom such things or to try and trace the course that God is using through this world's history in order to accomplish all of his goals? In all of these things, God is without equal. Verse 34, which of us would ever think of ourselves adequate to advise him in such matters? Do you really think that when you get to heaven, you're going to be able to open your Bible at Romans 9, 10 and 11 and say, listen, God, I think you could have done it better than this. Which of us are going to be in that kind of position to make that kind of uh, 
approach to the Lord. In all of these things, he is without equal. Only an ignorant fool would consider himself qualified to argue these things out with God in disagreement. And verse 35, don't for a moment suppose that God could ever be in debt to you or owe you anything. Now that, of course, is what the sinful heart thinks of itself. I'm good enough or have achieved enough so that I'm deserving of something from God. It's the least he can do. The reality is that we owe him a debt that we can never repay. We can only marvel and wonder and fall at his feet in thanksgiving and praise. But he continues to save sinners, whether Jew, whether Gentile, until they're all gathered in. And finally, this amazing little phrase, which encaptures everything true about God and everything that's true about God in salvation. And that's the immediate context, isn't it? Of him. He is the source and the origin of this. He is the originating wisdom which lies behind it. Through him, he is the enabling means and power and authority such that nothing can thwart him or stop him in this saving work he's doing. To him, he is the ultimate object and goal in everything. kind of puts you and me in our rightful place, don't you think? Because it puts God in his rightful place. When God is in his rightful place, in your life, in your thinking, you will be in a good place. You will be in the right place. Therefore, there can only be one fitting conclusion to all of this. To him be the glory forever. And if you're a Christian, you will have forever to do just that. Amen, says Paul. Amen, we say with him.